Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. It's great to have you with us for another show. And uh, we've got Glenn back from the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network in Franklin, Tennessee. And I hope you can give us a little uh, little uh, snippet of, you know, sort of the, the, the action and all of the thrill that, uh, that uh, I know that uh, Tom and I have missed out on. But uh, before, before we get to you, Glenn, let me just say, I, I, as I may have already said, I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and I've written a bunch of stuff. And uh, so enough about me. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and other undisclosed locations. That's right. That's right. right. We've got to keep that stuff secret, you know. The Nazis may be uh, raiding you at any time. That's right, right, right. Antifa and all those guys. Anyway, Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Great, and you've got a new, you've got a book coming out, Glenn. And uh, why don't you why don't you make a quick pitch for that book? Okay, we're still working on the title, but at the moment it's called "Slaying Leviathan." I think that's what we're going to keep it as, and it actually grows out of a podcast. Yeah, I did one a while ago on Protestant resistance theory. Well, when you add to that. Things like um, human rights, the history of human rights, uh, when you add a number of other elements together, covenant uh, ideas of government, that kind of thing. Uh, What you end up getting is the foundations for the U.S. government. Right, right. And so I trace out what a lot of those roots are. What most people don't realize is that uh, a lot of these things really are anchored deeply in the Christian tradition. And what Locke did is simply synthesize ideas that were already out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at, at uh, those things, uh, all of which are aimed at undoing totalitarian styles of government. All right. Or in and other words, of course, is we're past that now and we're going back in the direction of totalitarianism. <laughs> yeah, kind of a creepy totalitarianism, is, yeah. The alternate title is Leviathan Reborn. It's going to be one or the other. Right, right. Well, it's that's great stuff. And you were at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and you were one of the speakers out there, and everything I've heard, you know, uh, has been great, uh, you know, in terms of the response to you and so forth. So anyway, we're really glad about that. Is there anything you want to share just real quick about your experience there with a 1,000 people with no masks on defiantly, uh, meeting to discuss things like Protestant resistance theory. In an indoor soccer field. <laughs> yeah, there were about 900 people there. Um, I think the thing that really struck me was the mood of the place, which I've described as militantly joyous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, the singing actually reminded me of a phrase that the old Methodists used to use. Sing lustily and with good cheer. <laughs> right, right. And How long has it been since they've done that? <laughs> uh, that I don't know. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was an amazing, amazing experience. I'm looking forward to doing work with them. That's great. Well, we've got a treat today. We've got an, we've got an old friend of mine on the show, John's Mirak. And uh, John is a senior editor at The Stream. He's done a bunch of stuff and written a bunch of stuff. And... Uh, when, when I think about John, John and I go back maybe four or five years now. When I think about John, I, I, you know, and I describe John to people, I say, John is, is uh, Don Rickles meets Pope Benedict. 
<laughs> he's, <laughs> that's fair. he's got that biting wit that you know cuts you down to size or chews you up and spits you out but he does it in a very you know sort of you know uh informed and uh rational and very catholic manner <laughs> but anyways it's great to have you on the show john and we're going to be talking about a theme that we've talked about before on the podcast and and i think it's, it ties in really nicely with uh glenn's book that he's working on but before i before i get any further i just want to say one more thing about our relationship that i think uh is important to have you know stated and that is john was actually the guy who got me to write the book man of the house and john was actually the guy that encouraged me to call it man of the house i had a i had another title uh for the book and john said that just is not going to grab anybody's attention we need something more edgy <laughs> and so i said how about man of the house and he said perfect perfect <laughs> anyway there's a whole story behind that and how john and i you know had a all sorts of, of adventures together getting that book published. But uh, anyway, great to have you on the show, John. You were, you were my editor for that book, too. Thanks, thanks right. for coming yeah, on. Yeah, and then, then they put another editor on it who tried to like, take all the testosterone out, and he published it somewhere else, which was the smart thing to do. Right. Well, yeah, there's a whole story behind that. I don't know if, if you want to get into that story. but uh, Let's you... do that off air. Uh, let's <laughs> do that over a beer because I, you know, I don't want to diss former employers who are next to me. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I understand that. Anyway, so John uh, introduced me to our mutual agent. Uh, John got me connected with all sorts of people in the world of publishing, so I really appreciate John a lot. But anyway, John, uh, we're going to be talking about guns and God here. <laughs> uh, fill us in. You, you, you sent us a, and, and something that you wrote for the stream, and by the way, John is the, uh, the senior editor at the stream. Uh, so maybe you, if you could fill us in a little bit on sure. the stream and then fill us in on this thing that you sent us about gods and guns and government. Right, okay, well, stream.org is something that James Robison, the TV evangelist, started back in late 2014. It was designed to be an ecumenical meeting place for Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox concerned about public affairs and about defending the civic and theological roots of American freedom and prosperity and uh, national greatness. So, um, you know, it's been a wild ride. I was, you know, we, we were there when Trump came down the escalator and we were all sure he'd be a disaster. We all wanted Ted Cruz. And then uh, <laughs> we were there all through the election and the three years going attempt to nullify the election and uh, we'll be there the day after this upcoming election and see, see what happens. But uh, if you want to, I encourage people to check it out, stream.org is, is the URL. I write there five days a week. So I generate about five to 7,000 words a week. Yeah, um, I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> um, <laughs> some of it I've collected into, in, in its form parts of various books, including my two most recent ones, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism, we got to stop it and, and describe that one. You know, it's the it's the one with the cover with the nuns with guns. That's right, nuns with <laughs> rifles. Yeah, it's the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> That's back, great. Back when our nuns used honest weapons, now we have nuns <laughs> who don't wear habits and they use gaslighting and guilt 
and psychological manipulation, which they found are much more effective, <laughs> but just not very responsive, not honorable weapons. Right, right. The right. question is, are they protected by the Second Amendment? <laughs> <laughs> I would not protect gaslighting under the Second Amendment. I, I, I think that is not something that the founders intended. I so um, I've never held a loaded gun till March of this year. Oh I'm wow! In, I'm from New York City. I don't even like to drive a car. I, right. I live in Dallas now, and I still take Ubers everywhere. Um, <laughs> but I, I made friends with someone who's actually a fan of my books and got in touch with me, and he moved to Dallas, and <clears throat> he's a gun guy. And uh, watching the riots take over American cities, I decided it was, it was time for me to arm up, if only to make sure that, well, you know, I've been writing conservative commentary since 1982 in the Yale Free Press. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So I've got, if you Google my name, you get about 87 pages of right-wing commentary. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure that if they ever go around arresting people for their ideas, I will be, you know, not first <laughs> on the list, but maybe 10th on the list. Right, so right. Um, I, uh, I, they're not going to take me. I mean, it, it's going to look like Scarface. Say hello to my little friend. Because <laughs> I would not do well under torture, so I'm going to make sure we never get to that point. <laughs> Want to play rough? So anyway, <laughs> that's just really my exit strategy if a totalitarian state takes, takes charge. Well, um, you know, we, we probably should fill people in on your background. We're on Zoom. You know, we, 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 we meet uh, people who are in different cities, you know, through Zoom. Yeah. And, and so you're in Dallas right now. And so you, yeah. had, the, you, had, the, you had the power to choose a background to sort of express yourself. Uh, and so those of the folk, you know, those of us who have access to, you know, YouTube and are watching it on YouTube know what's behind you. But for those who are going to be listening just on their, you know, in their car radios or whatever, what's behind you, John? It's a mural of the destruction by fire and brimstone of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> it's a beautiful painting and it's marginally more orderly than my apartment at the moment. So uh, <laughs> I thought it would make a, a better background. <laughs> I, I'm on Eric Metaxas' show pretty much once a week, and I have fun with different backgrounds. Uh, two weeks ago, was, I had the lair of the James Bond villain from Dr. No, and uh, a week before that, I had Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Uh, so, and uh, it's my hope that if President Trump does a virtual debate, he uses his backgrounds to troll Joe Biden with like a huge picture of Tara Reid or a huge picture of Joe Biden with... Harry Bird, the Klansman, <laughs> or uh, pictures of Chinese officials handing back <laughs> or uh, pictures of different people from whom Joe Biden plagiarized elements of his own autobiography. <laughs> or maybe a picture of Joe Biden among coal miners, you know, we'll Photoshop there, among Welsh coal miners in 1914. Um, there's a great opportunity for fun that the moderator can't control. I have actually gotten this idea to someone in the White House. So if it happens, you know who to blame for a new vote <laughs> in American political life. I'd like to just, I looked, I tried in 1992 to, uh, to advance the degeneration of American civic discourse. I was in a Pat Buchanan round. And he was, well, it's a funny story because back then I sort of, I was sort of in my, my slightly punk state. I was just a you know, 20-something grad student. I was wearing a black turtleneck with black pants. My hair was kind of spiky, had little round glasses. I looked like Dieter from Sprockets on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and I come up to Pat Buchanan, and he looks, the look on his face is, 
okay, this is the guy who's finally going to shoot me. <laughs> and I said, I, well, Mr. Buchanan, I'm Croatian, and I wanted to thank you for standing up for the city of Dubrovnik when Serbia was, was, was shelling it. And the look of relief on his face. <laughs> I mean, he, his rush to death was over. But during that same rally, he complained that George H.W. Bush would not debate him. And I yelled this from the peanut gallery, but it was meant as a serious idea. I said, hire Dana Carvey and debate him. <laughs> and I, Dana Carvey had the wonderful H, George H.W. Bush impersonation on Saturday Night Live. And I think if we could have had a candidate debating a comedian playing a candidate, <laughs> it would have been good for America. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I agree with you. <laughs> That's so you great. see how I'm, I'm equipped to undertake serious theological disputation. <laughs> I do have a PhD, but it's just in literature. <laughs> I just make it up. <laughs> it well, you know, and it scans. Okay, and we're fine with it. So, but you, you've alluded to a couple of things in, in, in you know, your, 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 uh, your wanderings here. It's been fun. You're a Yale guy, and you knew, I think, Metaxas from your days at Yale. Am I right? It's an interesting story, and since Eric has told it, I, I don't feel bad repeating it. Eric and I were both born in the same hospital in Astoria, Queens. Wow. In a brief neighborhood. And uh, he, he, we both spent our first seven or eight years in Queens, but his family then moved him to Connecticut to a nice little town in Connecticut. And so meanwhile, I stayed in the mean streets of Queens. This is why Eric has this nice American veneer. You know, he wears tweed, he's, he's a little polished. But unfortunately, that, that sort of idyllic upbringing led him to sort of, uh, he, as he's put it in his, in his wonderful memoir, which is coming out soon, called The Fish Out of Water, Oh wow! He sort of conformed to the other people around him, who were sort of relativist, nice people from the suburbs who thought people are basically good, and uh, you know if they just follow their hearts, they'll right. probably end up in the right place. Um, my girlfriend, what recently asked me, she said, "You know, I guess when you were at Yale, it must have been tempting to uh, just sort of change your let your world you change just to, to fit in with the people around you. It would have made your life a lot easier." And I said, Faye, I would love to take credit for courage, but that never even occurred to me as a possibility. I was waiting for all of them to conform to me. <laughs> so I can't take any credit for courage, just Irish stubbornness. I'm half Irish and half Croatian, which is something the eugenics police should probably not allow to happen. <laughs> so some of the white coaches that shown up at my parents' wedding and said, no, we're sorry. But, uh, <laughs> the psychometric charts have, have revealed that this, this combination should not, it's just not biologically healthy. Uh, we're relocating each of you to separate sides of the continent. And, you know, <laughs> uh, you jo I joke, but Margaret Sanger really wanted to do stuff like that. She wanted yeah, to take yeah. people whose families had alcoholism in them and keep them in concentration camps so that they wouldn't <laughs> And until a couple of years ago, they were giving out the Margaret Sanger Award to people yes. like Hillary Clinton. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's wild so, stuff. So I didn't know Eric very well at Yale. We were in the same seminar once. And um, I don't, I didn't, you know, remember him, but I went to a pro-life event in 1998 and 
this guy, Eric Pataxis, who I didn't remember and didn't know anything about, was the keynote speaker. After the thing, he came up to me and he said, you don't remember me. I said, nope. He said, well, I remember you. You were that annoying Christian who kept bringing religion into our class on 19th century English poetry. And I thought you were the biggest jerk at the time. <laughs> you were absolutely right. And I've met the Lord since then. And I just wanted to thank you. I said, oh, great. And then we became friends. You know, that, that's, that's a very cool story for a range of reasons. One of the reasons is we live in a time, as you know, John, where winsomeness is like the thing that we're all encouraged to, to adopt. And winsomeness means never disagreeing with anybody or making them feel uncomfortable, you know. And uh, Eric's, uh, you know, remarks, uh, I think, tell a different story, that being the annoying guy who won't show, shut up can actually result in a good outcome. <laughs> you know, winsomeness is not a word I had ever even heard used until I saw Never Trumpers using it on Twitter. Yeah. And I had to look it up. Was it was it was it Tim Keller who was saying it? I, no, I think it was I think it was David Vichy French. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have an article with that in the title: David Vichy French wants Christians to surrender. And I found a real. It's winsome problem. to surrender. That's right. I found I I, I can say you know David French is still convinced that the Germans are going to make him governor of Algeria. <laughs> He's just waiting for that appointment. <laughs> Look it up. I've got an article. David Vichy French wants, wants Christians to surrender, and I have a real Vichy propaganda poster up there. And when that went up, various people came on Twitter and accused me of not being winsome and of violating norms. And I said, I don't remember ever signing up for any norms. Not the guy from Cheers, Norm? The guy who always has the beer mug? <coughs> You know, because I didn't grow up in the suburbs. Uh, <laughs> right. And I was like, let's see, when Geraldine Ferraro was our Congress, made our congresswoman as a result of redistricting, um, it was just before she ran for vice president. She came to speak at, at our parish church because, of course, the Democratic Party and Irish Catholic priests, you know, go, go together back, like right. smoke and fire. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she, she was like, gliding over her pro-abortion position and talking about how she's going to give more social security and all the old ladies are, oh, more bingo money, yay! <laughs> and uh, my mother stands up and says, first of all, I want to know where you get off calling yourself a Catholic and saying you're for abortion. Then, she has to let her talk, then I want to know what you priests and nuns are doing up there peddling this garbage to these people. And I want to know why all you people are here eating this with a fork and knife, grinning like idiots. And then my mother walks out. <laughs> the whole event is about abortion after that total catastrophe. That was my mom. So I come by it honestly. <laughs> you know, that, Trump is from Queens too. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> Eric in Texas, John's Merrick, Donald Trump. Three guys from Queens. Well, you know, I actually think, though, that there's a kind of interesting, I think, uh, dynamic that, that I've observed that I think a, a lot of people don't, seem to be able to uh, make the connection about, you know, concerning. And that is that uh, people with your background, John, people from, you know, sort of blue collar, ethnic back, you know, you know backgrounds, uh, and people who come from, say, you know, flyover country, you know, the, the deplorables, mm -hmm. there's actually a kind of very deep and I think uh, sort of visceral 
a connection between the two. There, there's a kind of common outlook uh, in that, you know, is sort of commonsensical, but at the same time, uh, kind of uh, incredulous uh, as to what's become of public life and media and all this yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a guy like Trump uh, is a guy that both those groups of people can relate to because they, you know, essentially he's human wrecking ball and he's saying, I'm going to take this stuff to task. And I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very it's very helpful, and especially given what had become of the Republican Party by the time it was nominating John McCain and Mitt <laughs> Romney, and it, it was like, you will eat your mush and you will like it, young man, because that is all that is served in this orphanage. You remember that famous episode of Little Rascals yeah. where they're serving the mush and somebody puts cement in it, quick drying cement, <laughs> and it solidifies. And it <laughs> So, I don't remember uh, that. Yeah, but yeah, it's great stuff. So now, my latest project yeah. is exploring the connections between gun rights and all our other rights. Yeah. And trying to show how gun rights emerge from the, the Christian vision of men as having dignity, rights, and responsibilities. And um, I noticed... In my research, and, and if you want to read, it's a, it's a long academic article, but it's solid. It's full of references. Um, it's called God, Guns, and the Government. I co-wrote it with Jason Jones, my friend, the pro-life filmmaker. He helped make the movie Bella. Yeah. Um, and the, the new movie, Divided Hearts of America, with Ben Watson. He was in on mm. that, too. Um, in, uh, for instance, when there's a mass shooting, as there was in Parkland, one thing is absolutely certain that the churches in the area will issue identical, virtually, press releases where they don't talk about sin, they don't talk about eternal salvation, they don't talk about the rights of the victims, they don't even really talk about the victims. They talk about gun violence as yeah. if it were typhoid or vitamin C deficiency or climate change. They treat it like it's a, an mm -hmm. epidemiological phenomenon mm -hmm. and that and they treat the guns as if they were vi viruses, the gun owners as if they were vectors of infection. And this is all intentional. This is all coordinated. There's a wonderful book called First They Came for the Gun Owners. I mm -hmm. recommend people get hold of it. It has a whole chapter on the coordinated use of epidemiology, of the language of viruses to hijack the gun debate and, and focus entirely on public health rather than the rights, the constitutional rights of every American. And so after such a mass shooting, you'll, you'll see these statements come out. And in the paper, which you can read at stream.org, you go to, it's called stream.org, backslash Second Amendment, and there's the paper, stream.org backslash Second Amendment. I, I give examples. I give an example from Mainline, from the National Council of Churches, from the U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops. Are those um, different organizations? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Catholic Bishop are Mainline Protestants wearing polyester. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> I probably smell more of cigarettes. <laughs> Whereas the mainliners might smell of either pipe smoke or ganja. 
<laughs> going down in the smell chart then you get to the woke evangelicals <laughs> the kind of evangelicals who really 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 want to get mentioned on NPR right. really excited to have their new spirituality book in airport bookstores yeah. who really enjoyed that check they got from George Soros and are hoping to get another one yeah. 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 so I go through them all and I analyze the language is exactly the same and so in the first part of the paper, we trace, where does this come from? We trace it to the social gospel. The yeah. social gospel, which was an attempt to deal with Darwinism by saying, well, it, it doesn't really matter if Christianity is true. It's, it's so useful and it makes people polite and it gets them to take baths and do nice <laughs> <stuff>. <laughs> social hygiene and personal hygiene. And you know, it makes people line up and wait for their tickets instead of rushing the counter. I mean, so, you know, all right, Jesus was lying about being God and he didn't rise from the dead, but that doesn't mean I have to quit my job at Union Theological Seminary. <laughs> I have tenure. <laughs> that, that's, you know, that, that, that kind of hits close to home. My, 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 my main, uh, sort of my, uh, my main professor at Harvard Divinity School, that was a conversation we actually had at one time. I insisted yeah. that there was an, a, an actual historically, you know, an, an, a, a real resurrection. Mm -hmm. that, that did me in. That was, it was the end of my time. Well, my high school <laughs> teachers in Astoria, Queens were denying it. We had burnt out hippies and ex-seminarians. You know, in the Catholic Church, when somebody is disgraced as a priest or a nun, what do they do? They go teach religion because they have theology degrees. <laughs> Catholic bishops used to have this brilliant strategy. If they had a priest who was crazy and a troublemaker, they would make him a seminary professor or a college chaplain. Because that way, <laughs> he was out of the way, they didn't hear complaints about him. Yeah, okay, he's corrupting the next generation. But I'll be retired by then. Yeah. So brilliant. Very true. Yeah. Brilliant Very strategy. True. So in my high school, they were telling us, well, Jesus didn't really physically rise from the dead. And Mary wasn't physically a virgin. Uh, uh, but here, watch these these uh, propaganda films about why you should support the Sandinistas. <laughs> so I reported this to the principal and she didn't care. Then I reported it to the local bishop. He didn't care. My mother played poker at one of the church-sponsored high-stakes illegal poker games that were really big in, in Catholic circles in Queens. And so she knew a high-powered Catholic attorney, and he wrote a letter to the Vatican. And wow. we actually got it to the papal nuncio, Pio Laghi, um, which ended up getting me a letter from, the, from another bishop down the road. But anyway, the point of it all was that this is what I talked about in my Yale interview, my Yale entrance interview. And thank God it happened to be a right-wing alumnus doing the interview. He gave me the highest possible score, and that's how I got it. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. So. <laughs> now, getting back to, yeah, get yeah, back, back, to yeah, back, back to the theme, we'll definitely put a link uh, in the show notes to the article. It's a good. It's great, great article to read. But I, I think one of the things that might be a surprise to some of our listeners, we've got a wide range of listeners. We have, uh, you know, socially conservative Catholics, mm -hmm. but we also have, you know, kind of neo-reformed or neo-Puritan neo reformed type folks who uh, might be surprised by your sympathetic treatment of Protestant resistance theory, just as an example. Yeah, yeah. well, so, okay, so I go through it in there. I say, well, where, where, okay, first of all, I looked at, the social gospel and how it, it, it moves hope for salvation from the next life to this one, yeah. to the creating the kingdom of God using human hands, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, reaching heaven. We'll just build a tower that reaches heaven. Yeah, that, that, there's no biblical reason for thinking that won't work. <laughs> right? What possibly could go wrong? Uh, and so, if you want... John, redemption, if, yes? if, if I can interrupt, one of yeah. the things that I talked about at the conference was the 1950s which a lot of people seem to think of as this great golden age of Christianity. Mm-hmm. But it's anything but. It's all social gospel. Yeah. It, it's uh, all, you know, there's virtually no sig- significant evangelical presence, as near as I can tell, in any yeah. of the yeah. And it's all about niceness and hope and progress and all of the kinds of things you're talking about. Did you ever read George Marsden's The Heart and Soul of the American University? I haven't read that one. He shows how the social gospel went through the YMCA and the the chaplaincies at all the Ivy League schools. And it it kind of provided a little refuge for people who still want to do the Christianity thing. You just move away from any dogmatic claims and just do useful things, make people happy, give out rice to the Africans and, and leave the theology to the rest of us, leave reality to the materialists but you know you're welcome to go clean up a few messes here and there so yeah well i'm I'm glad i'm glad you went into that the 50s is when all this was normalized and and took over the institutions because if you think the 60s were terrible well then what gave birth to them what you know if you don't like the flower well when was it planted and what was in the soil so you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right so if you believe in in creating the kingdom of heaven on earth using human means, obviously the only agency that can do that is the state, right? You're going to look at the centralized state, the federal government, or maybe a world government Mm -hmm. as your soteriological figure, as your redemptive figure, it's going to be Caesar. And individual citizens with guns, that's not what Caesar wants. Citizens resisting central authorities, citizens rebelling against the government. No, that doesn't work. That's like, that's a cancer cell, you know? So their model of humanity is a termite colony. Right. And they want to be on the side of the queen. And they are soldier termites cleaning out the rebels. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you, once you see it, I mean, and I know libertarians go to the opposite extreme. They theorize as if we were reptiles who lay an egg and abandon it. And then it grows up in the wild and it eats insects and it survives or it dies. And so you've got termites <laughs> on the one hand and scorpions on the other, but neither, neither extreme manages to account for mankind as God made him and Jesus redeemed him. So once you see the reason why these preachers are anti-gun, it's that they want force to be monopolized by the state, preferably by the world state. Yeah it all starts to fall into place. They are are there to help keep order for Caesar. They are Leviathan's cleanup squad. Well, I started, I read this wonderful book by David Capel. Let me get the title, K-O-P-E-L. And it is a fantastic academic study of attitudes towards the, it's called the morality of self-defense and military action. I can't recommend it highly enough. And he goes to, in the Old Testament, he goes through the history of the Jews, he goes through the early church, and then the church fathers in the Middle Ages to, to analyze attitudes towards self-defense and resistance to the state. 
and he shows how, well, of course, the Jews believed in resistance against tyrants. Look at the Maccabees. Yeah, right? Right. He finds that there was some reluctance among Christians at first because Jesus' words can be read in a pacifist direction. But once, once Caesar started demanding people apostatize and worship him, okay, well, no, that's the beginning of a crack in the edifice of just deferring to Caesar. No, we can't. We must obey God rather than man. Um, and then Augustine talks about the two cities and yeah. talks about the two locuses of authority, the church on the one hand and the state on the other. And he, he def definitely makes room for just war, but he doesn't make room for just rebellion. You start to see that with Aquinas. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you, and then, in fact, <laughs> medieval constitutional theory forms the underlying basis for resistance against the state that is used by Protestants. And you find the Calvinists citing Aquinas to yeah. justify <laughs> the Huguenots' war against the French king because he's persecuting them. Yeah. So, again, it took the medieval churchmen formulating resistance to the empire and the kings, and then Calvinist rebels against the Catholic Church to formulate a, a coherent, developed theory of resistance for Christians. And it's, that is the background of the American Revolution. Right. You, you, have to, you have to add a little bit more from Augustine in here because, mm -hmm. I mean, even more broadly, the idea of original sin is critical. Because yeah. original sin says is nobody can be trusted with absolute power. Right. Therefore, all government must be limited. There must be checks and balances because right. otherwise it will inevitably tend to corruption. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. The medieval papacy and empire provided checks and balances on each other. And when the empire collapsed, that was not good for the papacy. When it didn't have anything pushing back against it, it was then taken over by the French government. The French monarchy then took over the papacy. Mm -hmm. um, but really, one of the things that helped corrupt Catholic thought on this was the, the, the side effects of the Reformation. Because before the Reformation, the church could push back against the state. After Henry VIII got away with what he did in England, every Catholic monarch saw, oh, I could do this. If the Pope pushes back against me, I can just take everything and there's nothing the church can do. That's when the church started being utterly helpless in the face of the state. And you had King Philip II of Spain didn't like the Council of Trent, so he wouldn't let it be published in Spain. The, king, the subsequent kings of Spain didn't like what the Pope said about slavery, so they wouldn't let it be published there. They, popes were saying, get rid of your slaves. The Spanish government was saying, no, go ahead, try. Try to free them. So you saw the church lose its role as a check and balance against the state and, and, and become almost like a chaplain of the state, the way it was in Tsarist Russia and Byzantine, Byzantine Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the American Revolution is a very healthy development, a restoration of this balanced situation of church pushing against state. And uh, my good friend Robert Riley a book I convinced him to help. I helped convince him to write. He, he, was, he was losing his, his, his spirit. He finished, but he, I, I helped guide, you know, goad him. This mm. book, America on Trial. Mm. And he goes through ancient classical political theory, Augustine, Christian theology, and shows the, the profound Christian natural law roots of the American founding. So I recommend that book very highly, America on Trial. Sorry. Yes, America on Trial. Yeah, we, we, it'd be great, John, if, if, if after the show's over, if you could give us some links yeah. by email, and then we'll make sure all those great resources are put okay. into the show notes. 
absolutely. <laughs> so um, the real, when all the dominoes started to fall in my head is when I read the English Bill of Rights, mm. which was written in 1689. And it was very much under the influence of John Locke. Now, a lot of conservative Catholics now are bashing John Locke. Yeah. They say, oh, he's the origin of liberalism. You know, Obergefell can be traced to John Locke's pernicious secular influence. And he was anti-Catholic. Now, yes, John Locke did say things where he was distrustful of Catholics. And I always <laughs> ask my Catholic friends, do you know maybe why he said them? <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Huguenots? <laughs> <laughs> they were French Protestants who had been who had religious freedom for like a hundred years. Yeah. And the Vatican didn't even want it to be taken away. But Louis XIV did. So against the Pope's wishes, he conducted a genocide of the Huguenots, and a lot of them ended up in England and were friends with people like John Locke. <laughs> James II, who was overthrown in 1688, had spent a decade in France as the client of Louis XIV. Louis XIV was his financial sponsor. So when James II took the throne in 1688 and the Protestants panicked that there might be a persecution, they had reason. They had seen one in their lifetime by this guy's sponsor. So I am not one of those people who thinks that the Jacobites were great and that the, the 1688 revolu revolution was bad. By the way, the Pope of that era supported William of Orange and issued a papal coin celebrating his victory over James II. Not a lot of people know that. Yeah, he, right. The Pope thought Louis XIV was the greater threat to religious freedom because of the level of control the state had. The state appointed every bishop in France, every bishop in Spain, every bishop in Portugal, and indeed the Bourbon monarchs forced the Vatican to abolish the Jesuits, not that long afterwards. So, And the reason? The Jesuits were preaching resistance against the state, that you can overthrow or assassinate a tyrant. If he, if he want, it forces you, if he tries to suppress your religious freedom or force you to violate the natural law. So there's a wonderful ecumenical heritage to all this. But if you go to the English Bill of Rights of 1689, it says no Protestant may be deprived of the right to carry a, a weapon. Mm -hmm. That goes back to the English Civil War when the Anglicans were trying to disarm the Puritans. Mm -hmm. So they made it specifically Protestant. What that says is the link between First Amendment religious freedom in our Constitution and Second Amendment gun rights, it's a direct historical connection between gun rights and church rights. And in fact, uh, Stephen Halbrook in his wonderful book, That Every Man Be Armed, and David Capel, they both show how hmm. citizens' militias who <clears throat> fought most of the revolution, who had fought against the Indians and fought against the French, Citizens' militias were organized through the churches. And mm. sermon after sermon after sermon all across New England and Virginia and South Carolina talked about the duty of every Christian citizen to arm himself and defend his community against outside invasion and against tyrants. And that's why the American Revolution succeeded. And citizens' militias were seen as the backstop of freedom by our founders. And if you look at the debates about the ratification of the Bill of Rights, the only question about the Second Amendment was, is this so obvious that it's insulting to put it in here <laughs> that citizens have to have their guns? And various founders said, well, no, we have to put it in there because the only guarantee against tyranny is an armed citizenry. Because if we have an armed citizenry, no tyrannical government can last very long. 
it you was know. the backstop. So if there's no Second Amendment, there's no First Amendment, there's no 14th, there's no Fifth, it is the guarantee. And what proves this? If you look at the book Death by Government by R.J. Rummel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 170 million civilians were murdered by their governments between 1914 and yeah. 1990. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not casualties of war. These are the intentional murders. 170 million. The modern state is the deadliest thing we have ever faced. Yeah. What did their citizens have in common? They've been disarmed by their governments first. Hmm. So, yeah. so I, 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 I see you got a question there, Glenn. Go oh, ahead. Just, just a comment. The church that I attend right now, um, in our building, on that pulpit, when word came from Lexington and Concord, they rang the church bells, assembled the community. The pastor got into that pulpit, preached a sermon, and led the militia to Boston. That's wonderful. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Park Street Church was, uh, I believe, a uh, powder a powder storage area, you know, weapons storage area right there on Boston Common. Wow. wow. But anyway, this is great yeah. stuff. Uh, I, now, one of the things I'd like to reflect on a little bit with you, John, and, and this is something that you're also great that, with helping us think through. You know, here we are, the 21st century, all this has been lost, this, 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 uh, this patrimony in the sense of it's the story if you, you get my, my drift. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've gotten into it a little bit, kind of, you know, within the framework of paro the parochial schools of the Catholic Church and so yeah. forth. But can you go a little broader? Uh, we, we know that, you know, the, you know, the social gospel and the aspiration to build a tower to heaven and bring heaven down to earth and all that kind of stuff, the stuff that, you know, Eric Vogelin warned us about, um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of captured the imagination. But there are some things that have kind of been, I guess, uh, you know, stepping stones in the process. Oh, absolutely. Anything? Well, right now, 40% of the U.S. Catholic bishops' money comes from the federal government. Really? 40%. Well, and that is through their nonprofits, like Catholic Charities and Catholic Relief Services, and they make that money by processing immigrants. So if you wonder why the bishops are talking about immigration and not about abortion, they don't get a check when a woman saves her baby. In fact, it might cost them money because they, they're offering services to them, and the federal government doesn't help with that. But every time somebody swims the Rio Grande and goes into Catholic charities to be protected from ICE, they do cash a check from the federal government. So it's no surprise that the in, with institutional incentives like that, the bishops are not going to be doing a serving a prophetic role. And they pretend that these are the corporal works of mercy. Redistributing Caesar's taxes and yeah. taking a cut is not one of the corporal <laughs> works of mercy. <laughs> you know, I'm taking I, a cut part. <laughs> oh, taking a big cut. And I mean, yeah. if you if you remember there was a a guy from Eth a Muslim from Ethiopia who his whole family had been flown to Texas as refugees, flown over five or six safe Muslim countries where they could have gone for refuge. No, they were brought to Texas by Catholic, Texas Catholic Charities of Dallas, which cast the check, processed them, and that Muslim went to Ohio State University where he took a machete and conducted a jihad, cutting people up on the campus. Now, the bishop who was in charge at the time Kevin Farrell is now at the Vatican in charge of family policy for the whole Catholic Church. He was also the roommate of pedophile Cardinal Ted McCarrick for seven years and claimed he never saw anything untoward going on. 
and all. If I had had a pedophile roommate for years, I think people would ask me some questions. I don't yeah. think I should get hired at a daycare center, much less be in charge of family policy for the whole Vatican. But Pope Francis, well, to make this nuanced, I call him George Soros in a white dress. <laughs> <laughs> that's my most nuanced way. It's like a, that sounds like a Fellini film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Pope Francis rejects all of this, everything I've said today. In his most recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, or as I call it, Tutti Frutti, uh, <laughs> he actually rejects the... The, he rejects the death penalty categorically, which is in the covenant of Noah. Right. He rejects, uh, he says there can be no just war in our time, even though we just saw the Christians and Kurds kick ISIS out and defeat ISIS. That was a magnificently just war. It just finished happening. They, <laughs> they still have POWs. That was a wonderfully just war. You know, he ignores that. He, he, he in, in a previous, this was wonderful, in one speech, Pope Francis said that gun manuf we weapons manufacturers are not Christian. You can't be a Christian if you, if you manufacture any sort of weapon. I remember that. Same, yeah, and in the same speech, he denounced the Allies for not bombing the tracks that went to the death camps. What were they supposed to bomb them with, Holy Father? Were they supposed <laughs> to drop 40,000 word encyclicals on the tracks to them that way? Bombs, weapons made by people. I guess the Christians can't make them. I guess the way Jew, they, they would get Jews to give loans because of use right, of right, right. Maybe we need to have you know, all non-Christian weapons manufacturers to build the weapons and have non-Christians fight the wars because the Pope wants to stop genocide. You know, he, he, wants, he wants a world government. Well, that world government will have an army. Right, so right. Um, this yeah. recent document, it's, it's really yeah. literally heresy, and, and yeah. it needs to be rebuked as such. And I've got a piece at stream.org, uh, woke – Woke as the papacy, W-A-P. <laughs> it's about, it's a respectful examination of Pope Francis is doing cyclical over at stream.org. Yeah, Tom, you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, yeah it's on that point. It, it is one of the interesting things. I, I do teach at some Catholic institutions. I teach one of their uh, just war and peacemaking classes. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things is this, this um, spiritual naivety of people that should know better. Right, right. <laughs> when it comes to the reality of sin and this, this strange attempt to, to make, um, to, to almost neuter Christian spirituality. Yeah. And, I, and I really think that that is problematic across the board. It's with the evangelicals, it's with this, this complete neutering of, of Christian spirituality. Um, yes, Christian. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. It's a Gnosticism. It reminds me yeah. of an old joke, I, this Midwestern, I knew these Midwestern evangelicals in grad school, and one of them told the story of uh, somebody farted really loud in, in one of the bunks at a camp, <laughs> and one of the other guys said, hey, come on, this is a Christian camp. <laughs> and and there was a, there's a story of the 19th century of Irish Catholics building, a, a designing a seminary and sending the plans to Rome for approval, because we used to be that centralized. Even the architectural plans of seminaries had to be approved in the Vatican. So these nice, you know, squeaky clean Irish Catholics grew up this beautiful classical building, and they sent it to Rome, and it came back with, with a two-word comment. Sunt Angeli, are they angels? They had been too high-minded to include lavatories in the entire <laughs> building. <laughs> that impulse 
to pretend that we're already that we're already spirits, that we're angels, that we're living after we're already living the New Jerusalem. Why don't you get with the program and stop talking to us about ugly things like violence and and limits and borders and private property? Oh, by the way, in the latest encyclical, Pope Francis also said that property rights are not a basic human right. That they're a derivative secondary institution that must be subject to the universal destination of goods. So that's a with BLM on that one, right? <laughs> uh, and that's, a, that's also a direct contradiction of the words of Pope Leo the Thirteenth and Pope Pius the Eleventh. So, well, yeah, there are a couple of things that are great here about this conversation, John, because I think a number of our listeners, when they hear things about you know the, the Council of Catholic Bishops, United States Council, you know, and they hear some of the things that you've just described. Um, they're they're more or less uh, unsure or un, uh, are sort of unequipped to respond to that stuff because obviously they don't have the background that you have that to, to to bring to the surface the inconsistencies. In other words, the history of Catholic teaching and how it contradicts the current state of affairs. But the other thing I think it's really good for our folks to hear is is someone like you, who perhaps many of our people have never met a person like you, Catholic whose uh, sort of gut-level sort of commitments and and sensibilities are completely, uh, you know, sympathetic to their own views. And so it's it's great for for folks to... Now, I I have a lot of socially conservative Catholic friends, and so uh, what distinguishes John is the Don Rickles effect. <laughs> but the ideas. You may are, have to tell people in our audience who Don Rickles is. Yeah, we, we should probably put a picture of him in the show notes. <laughs> he was one of my childhood heroes. I used to see when he would come on TV on those like late night celebrity roasts, I would right. actually stand as if it were the national. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you remember when he did Reagan's inaugural? Oh, it was wonderful. Oh, that was great. He, oh, he, he, he got Reagan, he got Nancy, he got, he got Billy Graham, he got Charlton Heston, he got everybody. You know who else has called me Don Rickles? James <laughs> Robinson. Yeah, mom. well, it's because <laughs> it's true. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> he to Billy Graham, people said he was. You know, he could fill stadiums all across the South. So I would, I would just say the way to think of the U.S. Catholic bishops is, and this is not universally true, it's only about 80 or 90% true, gay Democrats in pointy hats. Wow. Uh, wow. Or, uh, if they're not gay, they're, 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 they're very sympathetic to the LGBT movement. And why? According to the bishop's own numbers, uh, the John Jay report that looked into the sex abuse crisis, between the low estimate of, of same-sex attraction among priests is 15% which is 750% of the general population is 2%. But the high estimate is 53%. If you have a staff that might be up to to half gay, you're not gonna be preaching very hard about the sins against nature, are you? Or you're gonna lose a lot of your personnel. So combine the financial incentives and, and the fact that the priesthood was a refuge for a lot of gay men who didn't want to come out of the closet and wanted to make their mothers happy and didn't want to get a real job and would have a guaranteed income and be respected and have a, a very nice reason for not being married. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a major, major problem to the point where I think clerical celibacy has outlived its usefulness. I think the Orthodox are probably right about that. Mm, interesting. Well, that's another thing that some of our some of our reform folks wouldn't be aware of, that there are people like you in the Catholic Church who feel that way. Uh, but, you know, this whole matter of the Lavender Mafia, yeah. this sort of underground 
you know, gay network within the Catholic Church, uh, it goes a long way to helping people understand why, in in one sense, they can say we've got an ally in, in John's Mirac, but what a, what's going on with with the Pope? Uh, you know, what's going on with the hierarchy, and and what's going on with you know the things that they say? They don't seem to be consistent with or in keeping with the, with their own catechism. Well, that's true. And Pope Francis is changing the catechism to accommodate his own views. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a real problem for, for, for Catholics. And, uh, you know, we have to address it. Right. Yeah. John, one thing going back to the, um, self-defense thing. Yeah. If you go back actually to the Stoics and this had a big influence on the early canonists, they argued that, life is an unalienable right. Mm -hmm. What that meant is you did not have the right to do anything that would hurt your life. So suicide, for example, would be out. But you have an unalienable right, for example, to food, because you need food to survive. Mm -hmm. And the, the the one that really got me is if you were convicted of a capital offense, you had the obligation. Now, the fact that it's unalienable means you can't give it up and you must do everything in your power to preserve it. So if you're committed, if, if you're convicted of a capital offense, you are morally obligated to attempt to escape. Wow. As long as it doesn't involve taking another life. Wow. So does it, how do, are you allowed to kill in, are you allowed to kill in self-defense? Um, Yes, uh, the argument there actually, I think the best argument for that is Aquinas, uh, who says that as long as your intent is to defend yourself and not to kill the other person, mm-hmm. then it's morally licit. Yeah. But, that, but he also defends the death penalty by saying people, it's not inalienable, you actually alienate it, you surrender your right to life when you commit a capital offense, you lose it, you, yeah. you give that up. Yeah, the early canonists go in a bit of a different direction there. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Well, that that there was no way that was going to survive the conversion of Constantine. And one <laughs> thing that's really interesting is <laughs> when people talk about early Christian pacifism, Jesus. First of all, Jesus used violence in the temple, right? He that would be like a class B assault under American law. Jesus told the apostles to carry swords. Yeah. He did not tell any of the soldiers he converted that they needed to leave the Roman army. He just told right. them not to be unjust. That's right. And the main ob- objection to be to serving in the army for early Christians, according to Peter Lighthart's book, Defending Constantine, oh, yeah, right. I recommend highly enough, yeah. was the pagan ceremonies that these soldiers had to engage in. It wasn't the fighting and the killing or the or the you know occupying territory. It was the fact that legions had their their local gods and they, their private god uh, yeah local household gods and they they did sacrifices to them once constantine got rid of the pagan sacrifices virtually no one had any problem serving as a christian in the roman army yeah. so pacifism is a rather a, is really kind of a late coming heresy it's not the primordial teaching of the church well i think too that you know this whole matter of taking responsibility for actually thinking through theologically your responsibilities in terms of, you know, being, being a, yeah, I, we, we hear your dogs there, John, <laughs> but, but it's, 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 uh, I think it's just altogether too convenient to dismiss the, the work of, you know, governing, you know, and trying to, uh, adjudicate and be, and, and, uh, 
you know, administer justice uh, in, you know, sort of a pacifist frame. You know, you, you, a classic example is, you know, my ancestors, the Scott, Scots-Irish, came to Pennsylvania and, uh, as a, you know, were relied upon by the Quakers to defend them. Right. <laughs> you know, Quake, Quakers had this high-minded, you know, sort of attitude about, you know, you know, you know, violence and all this kind of stuff. But they, they still needed somebody else to do their dirty work. Right, right, right. And you think about it, people who are pacifists usually aren't anarchists. They want the government to have a monopoly of force. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They want the government to be able to, you know, use guns to arrest people and put them in jail. Well, what if you're not willing to go to jail? They're going to use force. Police are going to have to use force. I did a piece at stream.org called Some Lives Matter More, where I justify shooting looters who take your stuff because your private property is your time. It's It's your life that you've concretized in effort. Hundreds, thousands of hours building a business. If someone tries to take that or burn that, they are converting all that labor of yours into slave labor in retrospect. It's slave labor. If they destroy your business, they have made you a slave for all the years you put into that business. They are, they're saying, no, that was slave time. And what, what do we think slaves have the right to do? Use force and rebel. All right, right. There's a, there's a whole range of things that come to my mind immediately when you, t- when you talk about property rights and the significance of those. And particularly as you, you I think, you know, wonderfully demonstrate that this is actually your life. You know, yeah. what is your life? Your life is, you know, measured out in time. Right. Like imagine this. Imagine someone comes into the Vatican with a spray can of red paint and tries to spray paint over Michelangelo's ceiling. <clears throat> Would it be okay for a Swiss guard sniper to take him out? If human life is infinitely valuable, no. You have to let him spray paint the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, but is it okay for him to steal Michelangelo's life? To steal all the time he put into that? No. So that is the argument for law enforcement and the use of force, even by individual property owners. You are defending your life and your time and all you have put into it. That is more important than the momentary lust or greed of some rioter or some looter or some thug. Yeah, there's a- where they, oh, sorry. I was going to say, where, where I think they tried to create moral confusion is by trying to make the looter be the kind of person who has, been, has a legitimate moral claim because of some grievance that they're still somehow attached to, right? So right. some injustice happened in the past. You who worked, you know, all of your life um, have benefited for something, someone injustice in the past has happened. So you now somehow for benefiting have an obligation to, you know, withdraw your benefiting from all the work you've done. So, so they, they count none of the work you've done as anything in, that carries a weight of justice. So they see it all as yeah. read in light of previous injustices. Right. And so, so what they've done is poison this well to where the looter feels a moral superiority right, in being right. able to take what you've you've done or not done, and in because most evangelicals and a lot of everyday kind of citizens aren't nuanced enough in their kind of ethic to be able to tease out what's problematic. There, yeah. there is this heavy weight behind this idea, and people are running with it. Well, here's a here's a good way to to answer it briefly. 
If you yeah. want to live in Zimbabwe, you can move there. <laughs> That's how you get Zimbabwe. That's how right. you get the $70 trillion note that has a rock on it because that's the only vertical structure left in Zimbabwe yeah. because they were doing this. Yeah. They were having the so-called veterans taking the white farmer's land <coughs> in a disorganized, chaotic way, self-imposed you know, self reparations. So if, if, that, if you think that's what's going to benefit the urban poor to turn America into Zimbabwe, um, you're welcome to proceed with that. But I don't think most of the urban poor will agree with you they want their property rights respected. They That's want right. the rule of law and juries and the presumption of innocence, all those nice things that you don't get in Chaz when gangbangers are running the streets or when Antifa are running the streets because they have stood, they've made the police stand down. So you're right. getting summary justice on the streets by the equivalent of the Red Guard. And well, let, let, we, we should probably kind yeah. of bring this into a landing here pretty quick. I can tell that you have a question, Glenn, or a comment you wanted to make. Oh, on yeah, you know, the way, the way Locke does this is he works with a labor theory of property. Mm -hmm. and the way that one works is, I, I would argue it's really fundamentally based on Genesis 2. Mm -hmm. um, although Locke doesn't cite Genesis 2, at least in his treatises. Um, what that says is that when you make something, you are putting some of yourself into it. When right. you do something, some of yourself goes into it. And since you are putting yourself into it, it properly is yours, just like your life is yours. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's and, right. And therefore, you know, unless what you're, unless you have an, an unalienable right to ownership, unless that deprives other people of the right to do the same thing you did. Right. Which right. is essentially what you see as well with Adam Smith. So, you know, it's more than it, it, it's more than just time. It is actually yourself, your being right. that involved here that is being stolen or destroyed by, by the looter or the rioter. Yeah, let's say let's let's make it even more personal. Imagine you write an autobiography. Someone steals it off your computer and publishes it under his own name. Hmm. Right. Oh, who would do something like that? <laughs> um, they're stealing your life, your identity, your selfhood, your intellectual property, right. you know? So I don't think these people are eager to see these implications really put out in their own lives. Like whenever I talk to deconstructionists and professors, I would yeah. say, well, I'm all fine with your theory that language has no referent if we can apply it to your employment contract. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're going to become a literalist, a dogmatic legalist when it comes to them trying to take away your sabbatical. But I thought language had no reference. All right. All right. Yeah, I, 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 I'd like to use deconstructionism against deconstructionists. Yeah. Something and, and you just turn it into something completely different from what they mean. Right. Yeah. <laughs> My right. meaning is just as valid as yours. I mean, that's right. So, so as we wrap it up here, John, I, I guess one of the things that I'd just like to say as we conclude is that, you know, you made, a, you made a, I think, a really salient point early on about the, sort of the medicalization of everything, sort of treating, you know, uh, guns as a kind of virus, gun owners as a kind of vector, that kind of thing. I think that one of the, one of the strategies of the left is basically to medicalize everything. And that's yeah. one of the reasons why this, this recent COVID thing, it really unnerves me. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, whereas, you know, with regard to the presumption of innocence, you're, you know, obviously innocent until proven guilty. But with the whole, 
you know, masking regime, you're presumed to be contagious right, until right. Pr- proven to be otherwise. Right. And then even if you get a test, it's not, it's not, it's not considered uh, something that frees you from the obligation of going about as though you are contagious because this, the, the whole, the whole, the whole, but, the, but this is even larger when we, we have the medicalization, you know, when we talk about, you know, the black Lives matters people and, you know, getting rid of the police, what do they want to replace them with social workers right. who have police powers to not just simply lock you up, but medicate you without a trial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just basically a bunch of experts can just come in and say, Oh yeah, yeah. He's got this, He's got this this uh, syndrome. I've heard this and that's, story before. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that's why he needs to be. And that's why he needs to be locked up and treated. Which is exactly what they did in the Soviet Union with the abuse of psychiatry. But they're doing the European Union. They try to have Marion Le Pen uh, hospitalized for yeah. the disease of Islamophobia. Right. Right. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. it. It's not yeah. a joke. And yeah. You know, and, what's the political genius of this? That I don't think anybody's really talking about. Jonathan Haidt did this great analysis of political tendencies. And he said, one of the most powerful things that drives people to the right is fear of contamination. You don't want communists taking over your organization. You don't want Muslims taking over your country. You don't want degenerates teaching your kids. Well, with COVID, the left got to seize contamination phobia and harness it for its own purposes. Hmm. And that has left us kind of flummoxed. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Anyway, this has been a great conversation, and uh, we really, we really should wrap it up. This is about the time that people expect us to be done. All right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. But this has been great to have you, John. We'd love to have you back again sometime, yes. and we'll definitely link all the things that you send us to link. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you. And uh, but anyway, thanks again. Okay. God bless. Thanks, John. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.